What an incredible blessing it always is. And I know you hear me say that every single time that I come, but that it's because it's true. It is a blessing to hear. Uh, it was good when it was said unto me, let us go to the church of Odessa to preach. I love that verse. I mean, it's an incredible verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, so I'm really pumped to be here today. It's an honor, really, because I know how your pastor protects this desk right here. This is a sacred desk, and he does not allow anybody to come here and speak to you about the Word of God that he has not vetted and filtered and knows that they will bring you the Word in a way that is correct, complete, and convicting. So that's why this is an honor for me. I, I sit by my phone, and when that ID caller brings up Chris Basham, it's a blessing on its way every single time. So I'm, I'm excited to be here today. So, you know, this week we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. You know, we, we've learned about this. You, you grew up with some of these. I missed it as a little kid. I'd rather go play basketball and didn't pay attention when my dad call, called me to come see it on TV. I, I missed that history. But, but it talks about the landing, the man, the first landing of the man on the moon, and then that famous uh, phrase that we all remember, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's just a historical moment, obviously. And uh, there's a well-known author that um, wrote a book about the America's space program. And he depicted the history of the space program from, from the early 30s all the way to the 1963, the Mercury program. And as he was writing this book, as, as he was doing the research to the book, he noticed that when they were looking for space pilots for this program, he noticed that these men and women that were being picked as space pilots had certain qualities and characteristic and character traits that separated them from the rest of the test pilots that applied. These people had a certain combination of courage, coolness under pressure, and total self-control. These test pilots had something that the other pilots did not have. They couldn't give it a, a scientific name, so Tom Wolfe came up with his own name, and he called it the right stuff. That's what he called it. So these test pilots had the right stuff, the others did not. These test pilots had the right stuff to be successful at accomplishing the mission that they were being chosen to do by the space program. So as I was studying this verses today, it occurred to me that you and I need to have the right stuff. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to have the right stuff. Because you and I, you and I have courage, we have peace under pressure, and we have total self-control that comes from an unshakable confidence in the God that we have. So you and I have what it takes to be a, a, a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. We have the right stuff to fulfill the mission that we've been given, the great commission of Jesus Christ. So I love what 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, and, and I love the NIV version because it expresses it better for me. 2 Chronicles 16, 19 says, look what it says. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing, and from now on you'll be at war. I read this, and I, and I can vision, I can just see the God, the eyes of God just roaming through the earth, just roaming through the earth, looking for fully committed disciples 
of Jesus Christ, fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think he's looking for fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And I believe that there is no better way to be a fully committed, that you cannot be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ unless you have the right stuff. So my desire for today, for you, my prayer for you and for me, is that when we walk out of here today, we will be able to answer this question. This is the question you want to be able to answer when you leave here today. Do you have what it takes? Do you have what it takes? Do you have what it takes to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ? You want to be able to answer that question today. And I believe the, bo the book of Luke will give us an answer to that. You want to know before you leave here today, without a shadow of a doubt, if you are a disciple that is sitting and waiting for Christ to return, or you are a disciple that is living and working while Christ returns. This is, this is, the, this is the, your, the, the big buck idea of this ministry. If you forget anything today, you can't forget this. You want to be able to walk out of here and ask yourself, am I a disciple that is just sitting and waiting for Christ to return, or am I a disciple that is living and working for Christ while he returns. And I believe Luke is going to be able to answer that question for us. He's going to help us answer that question. So let me bring you into the story. Uh, our brother let, read the verses today. So let me bring you into these verses. The, these verses, we find Jesus Christ surrounded by a large crowd of people, a bunch of people around him. And he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die. So the knees of the world lay heavy on his shoulders. And he knew, he knew the difficulty of the task of reaching the world with the gospel, what it was going to take. He knew how difficult that task was going to be. He needed disciples that would be willing to sacrifice themselves completely if the task was going to be accomplished. He wanted men and women to make sure that they knew why they were following. He didn't want men and women that had made a shallow decision to follow him. He needed them to know what was going to be required of them. He needed to know what was the cost of following them before he left earth. It was so important to him. So as he goes from addressing this large crowd that's around him, he starts to focus in, and he focuses on those that say they're his disciples. So he starts to talk to his disciples in these verses, and he starts to tell them about what it takes to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to answer for them. In many ways, these verses are not just good for that mountainside in those days, but I think these verses are good for us today. They're just fresh and new for us today, because Jesus is talking to us in these verses, and look what he's saying. He's saying to you, if you say, if you say you're my disciple, then first you must put me before anything else in your life. You've got to put me before anything else in your life. Look with me at verse 25 through 26. He said, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. You, you know, the first thing you notice when you read these words, the first thing that pops out is that word hate. I mean, that grabs you. What, what do you mean, hate? Hate my brother, my sister, my mother? This is not like Jesus. This, this is not what Jesus means. 
And you're part right. This is not like Jesus in the part about hating. You see, because Jesus is not asking the disciples to hate their family. He can't be asking them to hate their family when in Mark 7, 9 through 13, he tells them, honor your father and your mother. So he can't be telling them to hate your brother and father. Or when he tells them in Ephesians 5, 29, husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for him. So he can be telling them that. So in order to make this point, what Jesus is doing in these verses, he's giving them a hyperbole. That's what it is. So, so what is a hyperbole? Well, it, it is an intentional exaggeration in order to communicate a crucial point. It is an intentional exaggeration in order to communicate a crucial point. Okay, let, let me give an example to the men here. Guys, this, 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 you understand this here. Men, here's what a hyperbole is. It's when your wife tells you, you never throw out the trash. You never throw out the trash. That's an intentional exaggeration waiting to communicate a crucial point that you need to be throwing the trash out more often. That's what he's doing here. So this is, this is what Jesus is expressing in here in the most radical way possible. He's trying to grab their attention. He's trying to get them to pay attention, not only to pay attention, but he wants them to think about what he's talking to them about. So, so Jesus says, listen, the word hate here really is better to um, be understood is to, to love less. It is that when people see the love that you have for Jesus, and they compare it with the love you have for your family, for your wife, your kids, it almost looks like you hate your family in comparison to Jesus. It's if you ever have to choose between loving Jesus and loving your family, Jesus always wins. I had breakfast one day with a couple she was a believer, her husband was, and my wife was there. He, she was a believer, her husband was not. I was with my wife, and we're talking in conversations, a lot of things. We steer it through a religious conversation. And in the conversation, my wife makes a comment uh, about something. He points to me and says, you know, you should always do honor, put your husband first. My wife tells him, no, I, I always put Jesus first. And believer looks at him and says, what? Are you kidding me? So he turns to his wife, who's I believe, he says, what about you? Do you put Jesus first? Pretty tough moment. And the lady says, yeah, Jesus comes first before you. Believe me, that was not a pleasant breakfast the rest of the morning. The man was angry for three months after that, did not speak to her. She suffered the consequences, but she stood up for what she believed because she told him, listen, Jesus comes first before you do. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When you put me first. And Jesus encourages us to put him first. He tells him, listen, when you put me first, when you live like I'm first in your life, you're going to be blessed when you do that. That's what he tells us in Luke 18, 29 to 30. Look what he said. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come eternal life. So you will be blessed for putting me first. You see, the, the fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ knows how to act when a conflict appears between his desires and the desires of God. He knows how to make a decision instantly. He knows how to determine what decision to make when there's a conflict between his desires and the desires of God. He knows who comes first. Why? Because he doesn't compromise on his beliefs. 
A fully committed disciple does not compromise on his beliefs. He has the courage and conviction to tell his family, listen, I'm not coming to the New Year's party, New Year's Eve party, because of all the drinking and the drunkenness that happens there every single year. I'm not going to be there. He has the courage to tell his friends, listen, I'm going to pass on this movie because this movie blasphemes the name of God. I'm just, I'm just going to pass on this movie. He does not compromise on his beliefs. But he's something else he does. He does not bow down to social pressure. He doesn't bow down to social pressure. He does not believe that becoming more like the world will, will, will make the world more receptive to the gospel. He does not believe that. He does not believe the more we look like the world, the more we'll accept Christ. He doesn't believe. He does not bow down to social pressures. Listen, and I know these decisions are not easy. They're not easy. And that's why you need to think about these decisions between, before the opportunity to make a decision comes. So when you make the decision, it's not an emotional decision, but it's a God-honoring decision. You've got to think about that before it happens. So the first thing Jesus has told them, in order for you to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ, he says, listen, you must put me before anything else in your life. And now in the next couple of verses, he starts to draw a little bit closer to their heart. Starts to come a little bit closer to their heart and he tells them listen in order for you to be a fully committed disciple of mine you must be willing to suffer for my name you must be willing to suffer for my name look at verse 27 it says whoever does not bear his own cross come after me <clears throat> cannot be my disciple uh, jesus says cannot be my disciples unless you bear your cross some of your versions might say unless you carry the cross. Both words mean to bear a burden. That's what it's talking about. Both of them means to bear a burden. And Luke is talking in here not so much about the weight, but he's talking more about the willingness, about the willingness of you to go through a suffering process that is required to be a fully committed disciple. That's what he's talking about here. See, he needed you to be willing to take up with your hands the things that cause you pain and shame, but these are the same things that stand up for Jesus. He says, you got to be willing to do that. you got to be willing to suffer for me in order to lift the name of Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. Because when the Roman Empire crucified a criminal, they had him carry his cross part of a way to the crucifixion site. You know why they made him carry the cross? It's not because they wanted to hurt him physically. That was not it. They wanted to do that to shame him. Because what he was doing, it was considered a public profession that the Roman government was right and that he was wrong. That's what carrying of the cross part of the way was. The government was right, I am wrong. So when Jesus is asking you to carry his cross, listen to this, when he's asking you to carry his cross, he's asking you to make a public display, a public profession that says Jesus is right and I'm willing to die for him. That is what he's saying. He wants you to do a public profession that Jesus is right and I'm willing to die for him. That's what is carrying the cross in there. And you know, some of us, and I know myself, sometimes we, we just, we, we, we say carrying the cross and we use it as a, a figure of speech. You know, we say, you know, carrying the cross, it's that neighbor that has these loud parties on the weekends. Somebody's got to carry the cross. I'll put up with that. Or you, you say carrying the cross is when you have a boss that's a pain Monday through Friday. You say that's carrying the cross. You say carrying a cross is when you live with a lost spouse 
or love a relative. You say that's carrying the cross. That's not carrying the cross. That's suffering. That's trials, but that's not suffering the cross. Let me give you a good definition about carrying the cross. Is your suffering, your suffering is in sympathy with the desires of Jesus, and your strength is being poured out to do the will of God in your life. That's what it is. Your suffering is in sympathy with the desires of Jesus, and your strength is being poured out to do the will of God in your life. That's carrying the cross. Notice something in verse number 27. In verse number 27, he says, the words read, his own cross. Notice that he says, his own cross. It's saying we must bear our own cross. We can't bear each other's cross. Uh, You can't carry your wife's cross. Your wife can carry your cross. Your kids can't carry your cross. You have to carry your own cross because only you can carry the cross that is given to you. So it is your own personal cross. The thing with carrying the cross is that many of us want the blessings of the cross, but we want nothing to do with the sufferings of the cross. We just want the good stuff, not the bad stuff. We don't want the sufferings. We'll take the blessings. You know, we want to follow Jesus from the comfortableness of our living room. But Jesus says, listen, you you need to spend some time in the gravel road of suffering with me. You see, sometimes Jesus is going to keep you in the valley, uh, have you spend a, a, a time in the valley of the shadow of death before he raises you up to the summit of blessings. He's going to want you to spend some time down here in the suffering before he brings you up to the summit of blessing. But sometimes, sometimes he keeps you in the valley of the shadow of death and you never see those blessings while here on earth. He saves those for later in paradise. But he wants you to know the summit, the blessings and the suffering of his. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I love this quote. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear always precedes the crown we wear. The cross we bear always precedes the crown we bear. Let me me give you a picture, humorous picture, of what it is to desire the blessings and not desire the suffering. There's There's a forest in Arkansas, one of the most beautiful forest in Arkansas. It is called the um, Bridger Wilderness. That's the name of it, Bridger Wilderness. Thousands and thousands of people go to this park. They hike it. They spend time in there. This is just a gorgeous place. And thousands of people at the end of the trail give suggestions about their time in the trail. So there's a big suggestion box at the end. Let me read you some of the suggestions that some of these people have written after they have gone through the trail in the forest. One person said, trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Yeah, that wants the blessing. Too many bugs and leeches, spiders and spider webs. Please spray the wilderness to rid the areas of these pests. That's a true, true suggestion. It says, the coyotes made too much noise last night and keep me awake. Please eradicate these annoying animals. That's a suggestion from the people that are in there. And finally, he says, listen, a McDonald's would be nice at the end of the trail. It says, they want the blessings without the sufferings. They don't want to do the work, but they want to receive the blessings. So if you're not carrying your own cross, 
You're not following Christ. If you're not following Christ, you're not living the life of a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. A fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ will welcome the sufferings. In fact, James tells us that. Look with me at James 1, 2 to 4. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. So if I'm in that crowd at this point, and I'm listening to Jesus talk, this is what I would be thinking. I'm thinking, put, my, put you before my family. Tough, but I can do it. Carry my cross. Difficult, but I can do it. Sign me up, Jesus. I'm in the program. But in these couple of verses, Jesus says, whoa, whoa, not so fast. Not so fast. You better give this some thought, he says. You better understand not only the cost of following me, but the consequences of making a decision to be my disciple. That's what he's telling him in the next verses, because he wants us to understand that Jesus is not looking for casual disciples. Jesus is not looking for comfortable disciples. Jesus is looking for committed disciples. That's what Jesus is going to show them in a couple verses in there. So not only you must put me before anything, not only you must be willing to suffer me for me, but he says in the third point, he says, you must know the cost of being my disciple. That's what he says to them. See, see Jesus didn't want them to have the wrong illusions about what it was to be a disciple. You know, many times we lead somebody to the Lord and we leave out the tough parts. We always say, oh, man, it's going to be so great, you know, eternal life, Jesus with you. But we forget to tell them about the tough parts in there. But Jesus doesn't want that. So, so what he does, he gives this crowd of people two short parables. And in these two short parables, he talks to them about the same thing. He talks to them about making a hasty and a shallow decision to follow Jesus Christ. That's what he talks to them. Look at verse 28 through 30. He says, for which one of you... When he wants to build a tower, does not sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build, he was not able to finish. He wants to make sure that you understand that it may cost you your reputation. It may cost you your reputation. This parable is a simple one. It's about building a tower, a large structured tower, very expensive tower right next to the house, important to the house to give it protection from the enemy. So it's saying that this man, this man should take some time to think about, to calculate the cost, what it's going to cost him. He wants to make sure he determines that he's able to finish that tower, that he can afford to build the tower. It's the same thing with deciding to be a fully disciple, committed disciple of Jesus Christ. You need to sit down and you need to count the cost. Because here's what it is. An invitation to follow Jesus is not a casual invitation to drink a cup of coffee. It's a sacrificial invitation to drink from his cup of suffering. It's just not a casual decision that you make to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be his disciple. That's a serious decision you make. But notice something else that he says that you might overlook in verse number 29. In verse number 29, he says, All who observe him begin to ridicule him, saying the man began to build, was not able to finish. See, Jesus wants you to paint the picture in your mind that people are walking by this man's house and they're looking at the tower 
and the tower is half finished, and they're laughing at him. They're embarrassed for him. They're making, they're mocking him. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because he didn't count the cost. Causes embarrassment to him and to his family. It's the same way with a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a bad testimony for a disciple of Jesus Christ that stops following Jesus Christ because he didn't count the cost. It's, it's, it's a bad thing, it's a tragedy when somebody makes a shallow profession for Christ that hurts the kingdom. How does it hurt the kingdom? Here's how it hurts the kingdom. Because it causes people to accuse committed disciples to be hypocritical. They see things like that happen and say, oh, these, these are hypocritical. It causes potential followers of Christ to be discouraged to start following. Because this guy, he didn't know what he was doing. And it, it causes believers to be discouraged and even doubt if it's all worth it. You need to count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the first parable he throws in them. Then he goes in and he gives them that second parable, real quick, real short also. And he says in verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first and sit and consider whether he's strong enough for 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, will the other still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He's saying to them in this parable, it may cost you your life. The first one, it might cost you your reputation, but this one, this one might cost you your life. So it's a parable, it's a pretty simple one. It's about two, two kings that are at war. One has 10,000 men. The attacking king has 20,000 men. The king that has 10,000 men has to consider, is it worth fighting? He has to consider the loss of lives that will result from 10,000 fighting against 20,000. He has to think, is it worth dying for? That's what he has to think about. That's what he has to count. And so it is for those in the crowd that Jesus was talking to him. They're wanting and thinking that they are disciples, but, but, it, but it would be a foolish thing if they didn't count the cost and call themselves disciples. Because the first parable talks about embarrassment. The second one talks about consequences of following Jesus Christ. Sometimes, sometimes, it's death. A couple of years ago, I found myself in a mission trip, vision trip to El Salvador. And Salvador had the blessing of visiting a youth detention camp. Don't let that word fool you. This was not a youth detention camp. This was a prison for men under 18 years old that were waiting when they became 18 to be transferred to an adult prison. These young men in here were mostly members of gangs in El Salvador. If you know anything about gangs in Salvador, gangs rule the city of Salvador. They run businesses, they run families, extortion, murders. They rule the lives of the government, the city, and even the people. These young men in there, most if not all of them, were members of a gang. In this particular camp, the members were part of the MS-13 gang, one of the most brutal gangs in South America. The men that were in there were there for murder, were there for rape, were there for extortion, human trafficking, and, 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 and abuse of people in their community. These were the young men that were in there. I had the blessing to enter into one of these camps with another missionary. The guards would not go in there. They would only go in there with 10 or 12 with, armed, with their rifles and, and, and guns, but, but they allowed Christians to go in there. So I was in there, and I had a blessing of being able to preach to over 100 of these men. I don't know if you remember the verses in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, I came to you in weakness with trembling and fear. That was me. 
I was in there with weakness, trembling and fear, surrounded by over a hundred of these young men. Young, but dangerous. But the Lord blessed that moment. The Lord blessed it indeed. They listened, they paid attention, and in fact, at the end of the sermon, one of the gang leaders came to me and asked me if I can pray for him so he can show you the picture of the young man there. So, pop, that's it, as a leader. Notice all the tattoos. The tattoos tell the story of what gangs they belong to, what gangs they belong to now, and they belong. So they, they heard the word. So, during the visit, I had to do that. You know, there is a written rule in the gang world. Once you join the gang, you never leave the gang. You just can't leave a gang. The only way out of a gang is in a body bag. That's the rule in the gangs of South America. You just, you have to die. You can't leave. But there's another unwritten rule that allows you to leave a gang, and that is if you become a Christian. Interesting. If you become a Christian. Uh, I did not know that in the jail, in the prison itself, in the camp, the prisoners respected Christians. Wish they would have told me that before I walked in. So they respect it. So another way of being, getting out of a, of, a, of a gang is by becoming a Christian. So you become a Christian, and while I was there, we had a, a chance to meet some of the people who became Christians. In fact, I had an opportunity to see them, one of them getting baptized. See, we can see the second picture there. This is a baptism. You notice the brokenness at the third at the end of the picture. This, they take their baptism and the conversion extremely seriously. These are young men that profess Christ, and they're now in the prison itself. Here's the blessing in there. Now, as Christians, they have full protection from everybody in the prison. Nobody can touch them because they're Christians. Nobody can hurt them. They can preach the gospel. They can do Bible studies. They can share the gospel. They can do Sunday services, and nobody can lay a finger on them because now they're Christians. But there's some requirements to being a Christian. In there. See, because these, these team leaders know, well, I'll just make a profession of faith, and then when I'm out of here, I'm out of the gang. It says there's some rules. Rule number one, you will no longer have a personal name. Your name will be Sheep. That is your name. You will go by sheep. You will be called sheep. If you answer to your personal name or any other name, you die. You dress like you saw them with long sleeves and long pants all the time, no matter how hot it gets in the camp and it gets hot in El Salvador. If we ever catch you without a long sleeve and long pants, you die. Oh, the Bible, that, that book, you can never depart from that book. It has to be with you always, wherever you go. No matter where you're at on this camp here, your Bible has to be with you. We catch you without your Bible, you die. Oh, last thing. You can't cuss and you can't get mad. If we catch you angry or we catch you cussing, you die. Forgot one more. And when you leave the camp, I'll let you get out, just in case you made a profession inside that you're not living outside, we're going to assign one of our gang members to watch you and your family to make sure that you're living what you professed inside, you profess outside. And if you deviate from that, you and your family die. See, these young men, they knew what it was to make 
a decision to be a familiar, committed disciple of Jesus Christ. They knew what it took to be, and they took that risk. They knew the consequences, and they're willing to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. So now Jesus comes to verse number 33, and he, he, he comes to a complete stop. He stops in here, and he says, verse number 33, so then, that's what my version says, yes, so then, and these words mean, oh, one more thing. I, I got to tell you one more thing. He says, if you want to be fully committed disciple, one more thing. He says, you must come to me with open hands. You must come to me with open hands. Look, verse 33. So then none of you can be my, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. You know, many times you and I in public, and maybe in our quiet time, it says, all that I have is yours. Have you said that? You said it in public. I know I have said it. Oh, man, Lord, all that I have is yours. And my question is, sometimes, do I really understand? Do I really, really know when I say all that I have is yours, Lord? Do I, do I really understand that, what it really means? So Jesus is telling his listeners in here, listen, you need to let go of everything, literally, literally everything in of themselves. Because when, when you come to Jesus with your hands open and empty, he can fill them with his blessings. If you got them full of stuff, there's no room for his blessing. So he says, you got to come to me with your hands empty and open. He, he says, you got to give up all that you have. And it's only when that, when he can fill them. That's what he says. Because Jesus, look what I said. Jesus does not want us to be attached to our possessions. He wants us to be attached to him. Because our possessions will hold us down, but his possessions will lift us up. That's what he does. That's, he just, all our stuff bog us down from doing the ministry that God calls us to do. Get rid of the stuff, and that's going to lift us up and make us available to do the ministry that he wants us to do. When a disciple gives up everything for Christ, he's recognizing that Christ has a claim on everything in his life. In fact, here's what he's saying. It's one of my favorite verses. I encourage you to memorize this, Christ. Here's what he's saying. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. Everything under heaven and on earth belongs to him. That's what these verses are saying. That's what he's telling you. That's what a fully committed disciple. And listen, don't, don't get too, too wrought up in here. He's not, he's not saying you can't own things. That's what he didn't say that. Listen, anything that you own is because God allows you to own and he wants you to enjoy it. All the gifts that are from God, cars, house, vacation, whatever it is, whatever it is, food is a gift from God and we should enjoy. What he's saying here, listen, abandon your dependency on these things. And put your dependency on God itself. Don't place your dependency on the things of the world. Place your dependency on God. That when you miss the things of the world, it doesn't matter. But if you don't have the dependence, God is going to matter. That's what he's talking to you about. Because when your possessions keep you from doing what the Lord is calling you to do, you no longer are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're a disciple of things. That's what it is. So he's saying, don't be a disciple of things. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ got to lift everything, give everything to the Lord itself. I read a story of a man that uh, goes to a uh, pearl salesman. He goes to buy a pearl. 
So he shows up at the shop, and there's this beautiful pearl in the front, front window. And he says to the salesman, I, I'd like to buy that pearl. I said, ooh, that pearl, pretty expensive. I said, well, but, but can I buy it? He says, oh, yeah, anybody can buy it. So then how much does it cost? Uh, it's going to cost you everything. He says, fine, I'll take it. I'll give you everything. Where do I sign? So he signed. The salesman says, fine, how much do you have? He says, I have $10,000 in my bank. He says, great, I'll take the $10,000. What else do you have? What do you mean, what else do I have? I said, yeah, what else do you have? Well, I've got 100 bucks in my wallet. It says, $100, mine. What else do you have? Says, what is this, what else do you have? What, what more do you have? He said, well, well, do you have a house? He says, yeah, you have a house. Fine, write down, house, mine. He said, you take my money, you take my house, where am I going to live? In a tent? You have a tent. Tent. Mine. Oh, yes, mine. Listen, if I don't have a house and I'm a tent, I'm going to have to sleep in my car. You have a car. He says, yes, have a car. Two cars. Those two cars, they're mine as well. The man pauses and says, listen, you've taken my money, my bank account, my cars, my tent. Where am I and my family going to live? He says, you have a family. Your family? Mine. Oh, and by the way, you? You? You're mine also. He says, I want you to listen to something. All these things, I'm going to let you use them for a short period of time. But remember, I'm the owner. And if there's ever a time that I need to use them, you got to give them up because they're mine. That's what it is to understand what Jesus Christ is telling them in here. You must give up all your possessions. That's what he's saying. You must give them up because he's the owner. You and I need to know that Jesus is not the Lord of the tenth. He's the Lord of all. That's who he is. He's the Lord of all. We need to understand that. And, and, and so we, we started this message today asking you, you remember the question? Do you have what it takes? Do you have what it takes to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ? And I told you before you walk out, you will know if you are a disciple that is sitting and waiting for Christ to return, or you're a disciple that is living and working for Christ until he returns. Please stand with me. You see, something, as Daniel comes to close this in a couple minutes, today's message is custom-made for each and every person in here. You might say, no, he wasn't talking to me. No, 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 I'm talking to you. Yeah, so I'm talking to me. Let me tell you three, three ways that it talks to three people here. First of all, I think this serves as an encouragement. Yeah. See, I think this church is full of fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Because there's no way that a church like this can grow the way it's growing. There's no way that a church like this has a problem with preschool student children there. That is growth in this church. There's no way that people are ministering in the city and changing the city like you are without fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. There's no way that you have, that don't have fully committed disciples that are going to the DR or going to Alabama to share the gospel and change people's lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church is built on a foundation of fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. And the more fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ, the stronger this church will grow and the faster it will become an impact in the city all around you. So I encourage you, for all those of you that are fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ, and I know that there are many in the midst of you. So it's an encouragement. But it's also a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for the casual disciple. It's a wake-up call for the one that's been sitting in those nice, soft chairs, saved and just waiting for Christ to return. It's those that have been searching for the comfortable things in their lives instead of the things of God for their lives. It's those that are just waiting. You know, there might be some of you here. You might be saying, listen, you know, I, I really want to be a fully committed disciple. I, I need some help. I, I don't know how to do it. I've, I've heard these things. I, I, so what do I do? Listen, you find someone that will disciple you. In your case, you find those that can disciple you in your grow groups. If you're not part of a grow group, you need to join a grow group. And inside a grow group, you will see men that are walking these requirements. You're going to see men that are walking close to Christ, that have given their lives for Christ, that put others first before their family, that are willing to suffer for Christ. And you need to come to them, men and women, and say, hey, listen, I noticed that you are different. Can, can you disciple me? No embarrassment with that. And then there are others of you that are fully committed disciples. In those grow groups, you see people that you know they need to grow. They're, they're not in the Word. They're not in the church. They're not growing. You need to go to them and say, hey, listen, you want to grab a cup of coffee and maybe we can talk about discipling? You need to be discipling other people. That's how you become a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. So wake-up call is the second offer. Last offer is, it's an offer, really. It's an offer for those of you that don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's an offer for you, for those that are sitting here. Man, I, I can't follow Jesus Christ. I don't even know Jesus Christ. So today, before you leave here, you can see Daniel. You can see Pastor uh, Chris here. You can see myself here. I said, man, I, I love to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and we can help you with that in order for you to be a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. So listen, understand the cost, count the cost. Be a disciple. They just made a claim. They need people to help with preschool. You know what? A fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ does not sit and wait until somebody does the work of preschool. Fully committed disciple stands up and goes and serves in preschool or wherever God is needing you to serve. So I encourage you to be a fully committed disciple. So, so I thank you for you listening to the message today. I thank you for blessing me. I pray that you continue to grow 
and mold yourself into a fully committed disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray that you continue to do the incredible work that this church is doing. I ask you and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And Lord bless you. Amen.